Welcome to HXGN Radio. My name is Amanda, and in this episode of Digital Realities, our host, Megan, sits down with French engineer and volunteer Emmanuel Duran, who shares his story of traveling to Ukraine to scan cultural heritage sites in the middle of a war zone. For me, a laser scan is not the final product of what I'm doing. It's a tool, but a very important tool on my side. I'm using uh, laser scanning uh, really with an engineering perspective, and it allows me to do very powerful analysis afterwards. And what the scan is bringing really is a different uh, angle, a different perspective. Uh, People get immediately a sense of the damage because they can see the crater of the missile. And this is not something uh, you can get through a picture. So it's all about the graphic data. This past spring, French engineer and 3D data specialist, Emmanuel Durand, stood among the rubble of a children's library housed inside a historic building in Chernihiv, Ukraine. His mission was to scan and capture the damaged building after a bombing in March left it in ruins. He later processed the scans to depict the scene with transparent layers, really providing a unique perspective on the damage. In the image, you can see surviving columns and arches beside demolished walls bordered by a meters deep crater. He had created a digital reality with striking dimension that captures and communicates an important moment in Ukraine's history. Welcome to the Like a Geosystems Digital Realities Podcast. I'm Megan Hansen, your host today. Here at Digital Realities, we strive to bring you stories about reality capture technologies and the people using them to build digital realities. For this episode, we were very lucky to sit down with Emmanuel just 10 days after he returned from a 17-day stay in Ukraine. His efforts scanning heritage sites demonstrates not only what digital reality technology can do, but the impact it can have in the hands of people working to preserve endangered heritage and cultural sites at critical moments. So without further delay, let's get to the interview and let Emmanuel tell you his own story. Hi, Emmanuel. I'm very excited to have the opportunity to talk with you today. Both, of course, because the work you're doing is so interesting and important, and also because, you know, in reading your interviews for different news articles, you're able to describe the technologies you use and the role they play uh, in such an accessible way. But before we get to the specifics of your work in Ukraine, could we just start by learning a bit more about your background and and how this led to the volunteer work you've done? So... I'm a civil engineer uh, from Paris uh, School of uh, Civil Engineer. It's uh, one of the main uh, university, what we call the Grandes Ecoles in France. So it's a very old uh, school. Most of the civil engineers in France come from uh, there. I'm also uh, graduated from EPH uh, Zurich in sustainable uh, construction. That is more recent. I did a, a master there. So my uh, background, uh, I've been working uh, many years abroad, uh, 
mostly with multinational companies like uh, Holcim. And I was with my family abroad, uh, spending two years in a country, three weeks, three years in another. Uh, until 2018, when I started my own company, it's called Aman Engineering in Switzerland, so here in Geneva. From that point, now I'm my own uh, boss, and that is very important for what I'm going to explain after. So my normal professional uh, uh, mission is to serve industrial uh, clients on mostly structural matters. Uh, in that sense, this is where I start using uh, the scanner with Leica. I acquired my BLK uh, four years ago. And um, the difference you may find with maybe most of your customers is that for me, a laser scan is not the final product of what I'm doing. It's just a, a tool, but a very important tool on my side. I'm using uh, laser scanning uh, really with an engineering perspective, and it allows me to do very powerful analysis afterward. Uh, so that's my normal uh, work. Um, having said that, the fact I'm a consultant and working, I would say, on my own gives me both the liberty and also uh, because I have the constraint of, you know, when you're a consultant, you have moments of high level of work and then lower level of work. Um, so I have the opportunity uh, to decide on my uh, schedule. And when I have um, both the combination of some particular event, like in Beirut uh, in August 2020, uh, where some specific event happened, like this explosion at the port, and at the same time, I have kind of some availability to go where then I can decide to go. And this is exactly what happened also uh, this year in, in April and May, but we'll talk later more about this, of course. But I was also uh, in that combination with a lower level of work and all these events in Ukraine. And so for me, it's like it's like a call. It's like sign, like I, I need to go. It's a good... Uh, uh, alignment of planets and so I, I went to Ukraine in the same way. That's wonderful to be able to extend your skills to places where it's needed and, and where the timing is really important like after the port explosion in Beirut uh, but also with continuous support beyond the initial event. Yes, in, well, in, in Beirut I was doing and I'm still working a lot uh, with them so it's really an engineering uh, work. So I've been scanning the silos right at the place of the explosion. And it has so many uh, powerful uh, use today because the scan I conducted right after the explosion is uh, allowing me to provide the Lebanese government with so many uh, valuable information. For example, I was able to identify that the silos are leaning uh, because of the explosion. And then I conducted more scans, which I'm comparing with the software. And uh, I even did at some point with 3D reshaper. So I, I was able to determine the, the change in inclination. But more than that, there is also a very powerful uh, historical and, and memory side in the sense that the scene I acquired at that time, now they have 
uh, mostly disappeared because the site has been clean because life must go on. And, and the scan I have from that particular time is a unique uh, feature seen in 3D that only remains in, in our scans. So uh, it will have a big use later for anyone wanting to study on uh, from crime and forensics to historical uh, museographic and and all things like that, and of course architect, and then do a modeling or maybe a film. And for Ukraine, it's uh, we'll come more into detail. But my first mission, so I just came back uh, ten days ago, and I spent seventeen days there working with uh, architects and engineers under the Ministry of Culture. So I had an official invitation from the Ministry of Culture and with the list of my equipment and the BLK and tripod and all, because, you know, Ukraine is not a country uh, can at the moment access with such equipment. I mean, you know the BLK, of course. It's not a big device, but you need to be able to show what this is about. Uh, so I had all the papers and I was working on the heritage there. So it sounds like there were many additional logistical aspects to even start or gain access to do the work in Ukraine, along with, I'm sure, many other challenges or unique aspects to scanning in this environment. Can you tell us what it was like to capture data on these sites? You know, perhaps describe a day in the life of scanning damaged historical sites in in a country at war. A very good question, uh, Megan, because uh, it's actually very different uh, depending where you are. Uh, first, uh, before scanning, what you need to understand, imagine, is that uh, unfortunately we spend a big chunk of the time, like maybe 75% on pure logistics. I mean, uh, traveling, uh, clearing customs takes five hours, lots of checks, and then take the train, night train mostly, then the car, go to hotel, park and park all the time and, and moving. That takes a lot of time. But uh, to come back to your question, what it's like, it's very different. I will just give a few examples. When I started, I, I tried first to start uh, easy. Uh, I had to, so I came first from Poland to Lviv. And arriving in Lviv, I had a short sessions with my friends of uh, Skeron in Lviv. So it's a commercial company doing 3D. And they have a C10 scanner, and now they just got the P20. So they work only with Leica equipment, but they don't have a BLK. So my first uh, work was to kind of debrief with them in Lviv, and we went together to scan a church, a very big one, uh, St. George in Lviv. And I helped them with my BLK for half a day, and it was like a training session. So that was, I would say, in a quiet and very beautiful and safe environment. Uh, still in Lviv, I started hearing my first uh, siren, the one you see on the TV. It's like a few times every day. And of course, at the beginning, it is scary. But now I would say uh, people don't really... Uh, care because it's all the time. So unlike three months ago where they would go on the ground of their building, now they just keep moving. So that was the ambiance in Lviv. It's like almost life as usual and a good training. And then I took the night train 
because that's the safest way to move in Ukraine. It's like a call it couchette, you know, you sleeping train. So you leave uh, from Lviv at 10 in the night and you arrive in that case in Kiev at uh, 6 in the morning. And then I was immediately picked up by a team uh, consisting of uh, architect, the director of uh, museum, Maidan Museum, so really culture people. And we went immediately to the north of Kiev, uh, Chernihiv, uh, which is about uh, 40 kilometers from the Russia border. And here it starts really, it's different story. Like uh, we had uh, special authorization to clear the lines, but you need to imagine how it is to drive from Kiev and where it's a very bustling uh, city and it looks like Paris, but with less people at the moment. And then you go on a certain highway and from after a moment, there is just nobody like a highway and you're just alone driving 150 kilometers per hour and you have some uh, exploded tanks on the side and uh, some checkpoints every few kilometers we need to clear it's and we are checked by soldiers and show the paper and then we arrived in Chernihiv which is the the city there and they have suffered extensive damage and there we started working so in the Chernihiv region it was my first really uh, war scan so uh, two of them the first is the library actually it's a library for children you may have seen my my post about this so it's a very old building it was actually a, a museum for from a, a famous uh, a writer and then converted into library for children, and this was bombed. So I scanned it inside and outside, uh, which was very complicated. And for this, I have to say the BLK was really a tool of choice because you are walking uh, in the rubble. Actually, inside was the most difficult because the sailing was almost uh, falling. All the shelves with the books are gone and actually they didn't want us to go inside but I said okay I'm a civil engineer I I went to Beirut I showed them the place I went and I said I don't want to show up but if there is anybody that can know if this is okay not okay I think I I will manage so they say okay you go and I so I scanned the whole inside outside and I have one billion point for that that library uh, then we went with the team through many different other sites uh, like the director of the Museum of Maidan is already uh, in a mission like to pick up some particular pieces on sites uh, to put in a museum uh, later. I, I cannot be specific with you uh, what kind of pieces, but they were collecting this and that, which was uh, other kind of mission. Uh, on my side, uh, I was always coordinating with them because we had different ways of working. You know, for me to scan, I, I need minimum three hours because uh, I took everything in high resolution. So every scan is seven minutes, then I need to move. So basically, I need 10 minutes for a station and, and moving all around. So I was needing more time in one area and there were more going around and into villages and talking to people. So. I did the, this library, and then the day after, so we spent the first night in Chernihiv, and there, so to give you a bit of the feel of uh, situation, so you are in the town, which sounds like a ghost town, you have to close your curtains uh, so that 
there is no light from outside. At 10, it's uh, the curfew, so you can't go outside and the hotel will shut down all the lights and everything. And then if there is an alert, you, you hear the, the siren. And it's like this, you stay in the black until the six in the morning where you're allowed to go out. So on the second day, we went to uh, another village south of Chernihiv to scan the church that you may have seen also. Uh, that was a long trip because between Chernihiv and the church, actually, it was just a few kilometers, but the main bridge had been bombed actually by Ukraine to stop the advance of the Russian. So we had to go a long way, like four-hour drive just to make the big loop around and to access the church. And then we arrive at that church uh, site and that was really uh, super special because it's a very small village with almost nobody now. And this church is surrounded by uh, destroyed uh, Russian military vehicles, mainly trucks, because they were using the church as a base for them and to store ammunition. And then they were they were destroyed. I mean, that was really uh, the war. Um, so the church was destroyed and, and the vehicles. So I was able to scan the whole uh, site, also inside and outside. Unfortunately, the weather was really horrible. So my scan is very good. It could have been better outside, but uh, between the, the rain and the you know the, the burnt of the vehicles in particular, it is absorbing the laser. But still, the data is very good, and we are actually computing this at the moment. And I think between tomorrow and Monday, we will post it as a 3D link on, on the internet, actually, and you will be able to see it, and people can turn around. So that was the, the church. And that was for, for Chernihiv. And then we went back to Kiev, and we went to Kharkiv, which was, again, a different story. So it's like I was going more and more complicated. When they told me, oh, there is some work in Kharkiv, I say, Kharkiv, but this sounds to me like it's the front line. And they say, no, oh, it's okay. So I, I, I call a friend, he's a, he's a war photographer and working for New York Times and all. And I, he was in Kharkiv. I say, hey, how is it there? He said, no, oh, it's okay. So I say, okay. So I went to Kharkiv. We take again the night train from Kiev, like 10 p.m. and uh, arrive in the morning. And that train, you know, it's, it's really an experience because I'm not sure you took this uh, night train and couchette. It's, uh, I was doing that when I was a kid. It was very common. It's super comfortable in, in Ukraine. It's very clean. You have a, a kind of the one babushka, like the mama for every wagon. And she was a very big lady and she would come and make the coffee if you want. And uh, it's... Uh, it's very uh, organized, like you have to put your pillow like this and you bed linen like this. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of funny experience uh, from one side, but then the south from the other side because the train is almost empty and all the you can't really see outside because all the again you need to put the curtains down at night and also the windows. All the windows are. Uh, they have put these uh, like uh, big uh, transparent stickers in case the, some bombing, the, the glass would not shatter, you know. So all in all, is the train is an experience in itself. And then you arrive in Kharkiv in the morning, big station, only with military outside. 
then it's really you feel like you're in the front. And this uh, this is where I heard actually my first shelling, you know, like boom. That is, oh, this is shelling, you know, it's like it's like the rain. It's like, oh, today it's... Oh, it's <laughs> and so in Kharkiv, this is where I, I work the most, uh, on mainly on three sites. So I just tried to make it short and then... Uh, in Kharkiv, I, I was scanning one, they call it dispenser, so it's a hospital. It was bombed and all the roof uh, burned and some fire went inside. So here, the most graphic part is really the roof. Then I was on the fire station. Uh, this one I'm going to post again. Uh, it's a historical building from 1887, so it's not super old as such, but for the industrial period it is. Beautiful building made of bricks and with a, with a power, um, and it was also uh, bombed, of course. So here I was able to scan inside and outside. And I did a, a first world, at least for me, is uh, with the fireman. I used the BLK from the fireman uh, hydraulic basket, you know? Oh, okay. But I, I went like 30 meter high. So I did kind of a flying LIDAR with the, <laughs> with the BLK, which allowed me to get very good data of the roof. And I had no idea how it would turn because this is always, you know, moving a bit. But data is actually very good. I was so happy. So I did inside, outside, and also uh, flying. Finally, in Kharkiv, I work on the building, which is the university uh, faculty of economics. So in the very center of Kharkiv, and which was also uh, bombed, of course. So here it's uh, the first concrete building, uh, multi-story in Ukraine. So it's not like that super old uh, in the sense it's a concrete building, but it's one of the first concrete of this magnitude and from the very famous architect. Uh, very interesting uh, technically. And here I, I was able to scan uh, most, not all the building because it's far too big. I would need one week for this one, but all the, um, the courtyard inside, which is extremely graphic uh, with the damaged car and all the bricks and from the roof, and this is also where the BLK really helped me because I'm using kind of a tension rod, you know, it allows me to go about more than three meters high. So I was able actually to scan places without going there, but just by uh, sending my BLK through a, a hole so that the scanner would go outside and then I could control with the with the app and so conduct scan in a very uh, difficult complex area and then I went back to Kiev where I wanted to scan the Irpin bridge which you have seen it's very emblematic place it was uh, destroyed to stop the advance of the Russian in the west northwest of Kiev this is the bridge where you see this Ukraine flag today and the vehicle upside down and so I wanted to scan this one because I'm a civil engineer and, and they told me yeah this is not historical I said yeah but you will see I have seen in Beirut how things can turn iconic and actually it is the case because when I was scanning I saw and I discussed they are already building a new bridge but beside in parallel and they have already decided to keep this European bridge as a as a symbol. So 
I have all, also this one uh, in, in the box, yeah. And I'm still uh, computing today. I'm still processing data. And there are other people, other members of the team, like Scaron in Lviv, or a friend in Spain, and we are converting also this into uh, mesh, into 3D, and posting because, of course, and you know that. I mean, it's also your field, of course. But aside from all. What I said before, the use of scan for uh, forensic, for the architects, and later for museography, there is uh, a very big use today, which is simply communication. In the sense, uh, Ukraine can and is already using our data to, to communicate and say, look at the damage and what they did on us. And in that sense, uh, I was lucky to meet in Kharkiv, it was really a, a coincidence at that point, uh, a journalist from uh, Agence Press, from AFP. Uh, he was in Kharkiv in, in the same hotel and came with me at the fire brigade with his photographer. And, and that's the good thing with AFP because uh, they make one paper on you and then the day after it's just everywhere. Like it's really, uh, I was, showing them now it's even in South Africa, in China, in, in Danish, you have the video in, in German, in, in, in whatever. It's just incredible. And it keeps going at the moment. Uh, I had interviews with so many people. Uh, this morning I had ABC News in the US say, ah, we want to go with you at site and scan and all. I say, yeah, I'm sorry, no, I, I'm back, you know. I had CBS News and, but they are coming and all going, and I will come back, so we'll keep working on that. But there is a significant interest because, uh, you know, every day Ukraine is about the, the war, of course, the shelling, the victims, and they really like, uh, all the media, they like uh, our story, I mean, me and the other volunteers, because it gives a different color. It's... In a way, it's also giving some, some hope in the sense that it's kind of the first step for reconstruction. It's also very graphic, of course. So there is a big interest. The thing is, I had this experience in Beirut. Uh, you are on the field. And to be honest, uh, when you are on the field, I mean, I'm happy to talk to journalists, but at the same time, I'm also trying to be uh, discreet in what I'm doing because there are good people and, and bad people, you know, so I, I need to be careful who I'm talking to and, and I had a lot of work. So basically, when you are there, you are busy on your task on the ground and afterwards, of course, after the AFP released the, the paper, then... A lot want to talk to me, but I, it's either I'm already in the south in a different town or I'm already like this morning with ABC, I'm already back home because I'm a real volunteer. Uh, so unfortunately, I'm not able to stay there. I would love to, but I can't stay all the time. You spoke about the significant interest from different news agencies and media outlets and through photographs and film footage, of course, people have seen damage in Ukraine, but the work you do and the images you're able to produce with the scans are able to show the damage with a stronger sense of dimension and depth and really the extent of the destruction. Can you talk about how 
laser scanning as a technology makes demonstrating this possible, particularly in the context of historical buildings damaged in war? To answer your question, I hope it will answer. The, the great particularity of the laser scan is, is that it brings uh, a different light, a different angle to a particular scene, uh, something that is not existing uh, uh, before, I would say, in the way people uh, uh, communicate. I have many friends, uh, they are war photographers, uh, in people I met in Beirut, including one actually two months ago, as a uh, Marcus Yam, is a Pulitzer Prize for photography. So very uh, famous people, and they take, uh, of course, they they are pictures and they are very graphic and and dramatic. But this remains, uh, of course, two D pictures, and what the scan is bringing really is a different uh, angle, a different perspective. For example, for the library, and you saw that on the LinkedIn, in just a snapshot, applying transparency to the point cloud, uh, people get immediately a sense of the damage because they can see the crater of the missile. And this is not something uh, you can get through a picture because the picture is a narrow angle. You see a hole, but you don't really realize. So. That's really a different perspective. And then, of course, uh, everything that we know we get from the scan, it means the possibility later to give to the uh, readers uh, to manipulate the 3D and to get a better sense of, of the scene. So it's all about the graphic data. Last Friday, I was in ETH in Zurich at the invitation of my uh, alma mater and uh, the, the closure of some uh, promotion of the civil engineering department. And so I was presenting the work and people were really uh, impressed, uh, including uh, there was an architect from Herzog and De Meuron, you know, it's a very famous uh, architect. And he was really impressed by the point cloud, uh, powerful vendor. He said, ah, oh, we are, we are using point cloud, but we, we don't really like point cloud. We prefer, so to the point that uh, sometimes we decide not to scan because we, the guys, they scan and then they mesh and in the end it's a long process and we realize it's better just to, to draw. Uh, and, and he said, I realize from your work that actually uh, the scan and even just the point cloud is really uh, powerful. So it was a discovery from them and they are really big guys in architecture, Herzog and the Moon, So. Yeah, they got the Pritzker, like the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in architecture. And all. So it's a it's a discovery. I really enjoy the the PLK. Uh, I think I'm really using it to the to the max. You know, in the sense that it's it's the only device of that uh, weight and that scale. So you can really take it everywhere has so many advantages for the, the BLK when you go to complex areas like in this case uh, in Ukraine or when I travel it's like it fits in your luggage and this is so important because when you travel with a scanner you don't like to have 20,000 or 50,000 piece uh, in the hold of the, of the plane, you know, because uh, when you are waiting for your luggage on the conveyor, you always say, oh my God, I hope it's coming. Yeah. So you like to have it in your luggage and 
and also it's uh, it's it's not attracting a lot of attention like uh, when you have a big scanner you need to do paperwork at the custom like ATA carnet and people open the the big red box and oh what is this and you look like the spy so the BLK is so discreet most of the time when I'm questioned I just say yeah it's a panoramic camera and that's it. It's not wrong. <laughs> it's not wrong. Yeah, it's a half life. Yeah. <laughs> you need to avoid the word laser in the customs or with military people. It attracts attention. So if they ask more, I would say it's a 3D imager. But it's not a, a lie. So all in all, between these portabilities and, uh, and with the range is sufficient. So, yeah. To continue the discussion beyond the initial communication potential of the imaging. You briefly mentioned earlier that people are and, and will continue to use this data in different ways, you know, from reconstruction plans to stabilizing structures and, and so on. Could you go into a bit more detail about the ways this data might be used in the short and the long term? As you know, what I've been doing in, in Ukraine is really the first uh, step. I'm producing laser point cloud in intensity and with RGB colors. So this is like uh, just making flour. And uh, from that point, they will be able to bake it into a pastry or bread and whatever. But it's really the, the base material. So I'm trying to stay very humble at this point and uh, highlight the next step, as you mentioned, short or long term. Actually, this is always the question from the journalists. Uh, this is nice, but this is for what? Yeah. So, on the on the short term, to be very honest, uh, the, the very first short term is communication for all these guys and for the government. But this is extremely important. And right now, I mean, just today, let's say, by the time we speak. I was reading yesterday an article about Ukraine and let's say people here in Europe getting kind of tired about Ukraine, you know, like three months ago, everybody support, but then it's going down and now people are more looking at the price of the gasoline and they are, we hope it will end soon. And so people are getting tired and like in the end, some are starting to think, yeah, they should give up on this war and there is a sense of getting tired. So one short uh, use right now is again on the communication point of view, it's clearly, it helps, it's it's just a drop in the water of course, but it is helping like to sustain the attention towards Ukraine and I can see because I have like again this morning, yesterday, uh, this morning also I had uh, a journalist from Australia preparing something more, more detailed. So it keeps the attention. And, and then it's also helping. So that's on the short term. It's actually happening now. It is definitely helping uh, local people to get more than attention, to get actually uh, grants and money from international institutions like the guys of uh, Skiron today, uh, well, uh, I would say first of thanks to the visibility, for example, just talking about you, Leica, we were able to secure some licenses uh, from these guys. So they gave me 
license of uh, publisher and cyclone register, which I immediately forwarded to Ukraine. So, and this is something they didn't have access. But more than that, like uh, Skeron now, they just secure one grant from uh, Alif. It's a institution for preservation of heritage. It's based here in Geneva, in Switzerland. So it's a national NGO. They are just now uh, awarding a grant to Skeron to keep moving. And other association like uh, Harry. So the Heritage Emergency uh, Initiative, so this is in Ukraine, uh, these architects and museum people, uh, they are also working very hard at the moment uh, to get some funding for the preservation either of artifacts inside the museum or uh, building uh, by themselves. So they are already uh, using our work and all the visibility we have been given by the press leverage on this. And obviously, you know, uh, uh, communication is very important. It's not if, if you write to, let's say, UNESCO and you say, oh, we do this and that. And can you help us? And if you write to UNESCO and you say, we do this and that. And look, this is our article in uh, uh, New York Times. And uh, because it really went everywhere and Stern in Germany, etc. Et so it's very powerful. That's the short term. On the longer term, of course, they will be uh, uh, used, uh, I can't say by who, but for uh, forensic, for war crime uh, investigation. On my side, I'm giving the files to Ukraine. I'm not keeping that for me, of course. So I did a volunteer job and I put the point cloud on the server and give access to my contacts. So they will be deciding how they want to dispatch, but I'm sure it will go for a part for war crime investigation. For another part, it is already going to architecture people and they will use that to uh, establish, to draw plans, drawings of these uh, buildings and prepare for the reconstruction. At this point, it will take time. So that's why this is more mid long term because they have to get familiar with the point cloud technology and also adapt to the power it requires in terms of uh, uh, computing, especially with heavy point clouds. And on the longer, longer term, uh, this for sure is going to be part of uh, history. They might decide to use for museographic because again, and that's my experience in Beirut, what is very important and maybe can be my conclusion at this point of everything is uh, when you have uh, a scene of damage, it is so super important to acquire it in 3D as early as possible because the scene is changing very fast. Like uh, victims would be uh, displaced, uh, some artifacts would be uh, removed, uh, rubble will be clean. So in the ideal world, I mean, as soon as something happened, I would say the day after, go and scan and, uh, yeah. Uh, Emmanuel, I really can't thank you enough for visiting with us today, especially for taking us through your trip day by day in such detail. That it was really fascinating to hear about your whole experience and to learn about the way this data is, is already making an impact along with its potential in the future. So again, thank you. 
to learn more about Emmanuel's work and see both point clouds and photographs from his time in Ukraine, you can read our case study on the Leica Geosystems website. And you can also follow Emmanuel on Instagram at aman, A-M-A-N-N dot engineer. And you can visit his website, www.aman.engineering. And if you enjoyed this podcast and are interested in hearing more on this topic, we actually have another great episode in this series on scanning in Ukraine with members of Skyron, who remember Emmanuel mentioned working with during his scan of the church in Lviv. They are also specialists in 3D data and laser scanning, and they've really made it their mission to digitize historic sites across the country. They, you know, they're hoping through their 3D models to ensure that no matter what the future holds for Ukraine, these landmarks will be digitally preserved just as they are today. So there's is certainly also an inspiring story and I can really recommend it. Additionally, we want to put the call out to you, our listeners, to share your digital reality stories with us. It's so inspiring and interesting to learn about the ways you're putting like a geosystems reality capture technologies to work in the world. So if you have a story about your own projects that you'd like to share, please, please email us at digitalrealities, all one word, dot geo, G-E-O, at leica-geosystems.com. Don't worry if you didn't get that. You can also find this email address on our podcast page. So that's it for this episode of Digital Realities. I really hope you join us again next time. And until then, I wish you happy capturing, collaborating, and creating.